This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Lenora Whiteman, author of Snowbound Stagecoach, a charming work of historical fiction based on years of research and set in the Oregon country during the extreme winter of 1861 and 1862. I think the stagecoach driver is one of the most heroic and stalwart people in the whole book. And I'm just not sure. Maybe maybe a young Sam Elliott for the stagecoach driver. <laughs> I reached Lenore Whiteman by phone from her home near Vancouver, Washington. Lenora Whiteman is my guest on this episode of Columbia Conversations, and she's the author of a book called Snowbound Stagecoach, about one of my favorite topics, or two of my favorite topics, actually, history and weather. And so, uh, Ms. Whiteman, where, where are we speaking to you from this evening? I'm in Vancouver, Washington. Have you lived there for a long time? Yes, uh, we lived here in the same place for about 32 years now. Now, what inspired you to want to write historical fiction about a big blizzard from more than 150 years ago and populated with the cast of characters. What was, what was the inspiration? I was doing uh, family history research back in 1990, and I was in the public library in Albany, Oregon. And I get sidetracked when I'm doing this research because there's so many fascinating things that you run into when you start looking into the past. And I was looking through a file cabinet that was labeled miscellaneous. And in there, I found a two-page typewritten article about some miners who were trying to come back from the Salmon River mines who got taken uh, aside and uh, stranded by the blizzard. And and that blizzard, I mean, it's... It's not that well known. Um, I've done a little bit of research into weather history over the years and have run across some, some accounts in history books. I haven't found any photographs or anything, but for someone who's never heard about that, can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, the, the, the big winter of 1861, 1862? Yes, uh, that was the winter. Uh, the first really bad thing that happened, it had been raining all over the region. Everything, all the water was high everywhere. And the first really bad thing that happened uh, was back in, I think, early December or late November, and that was when the Willamette River washed away the town of Shampooey, totally. Oh, and that's the town where the provisional government had been set up about 10 10 or 15 years before that, yeah. Yes, and they said that the high water mark was over 50 feet above the usual water line. So that was that was very serious, and they never they never rebuilt, and uh, then things just deteriorated from from late December on into early January. It got very cold. Uh, getting around on the few roads that there were was very hazardous. Uh, the Columbia River was totally iced over in uh, early January to where the steamboats couldn't run either from Wallula down to the Dalles or 
from Portland out to Astoria eventually. They were shut down completely. And, and when that happens in those days, I mean, that's the main, main kind of transportation to get from yeah. you know, like the interior, what's now Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, to, to even, Western Washington, Western Oregon. In the Willamette Valley and around uh, Puget Sound, going by water was the way to do it. The mm. roads were horrible and muddy even during good times. And if you had a boat, that was, and that, that was the way to do it. And most of the settlements were on the water. And so that's, that storm, I know the settlers had only been here, I mean, the non-natives had been here in great numbers, only about 20 years at that point. And I know they, they hadn't exactly. experienced a, weather like, a winter like that before. And I guess, you know, exactly. and there was no, nothing in the way of weather forecasts that could have prepared them or anything like that. And so it seemed like no. this, it caught, took a lot of people by surprise. And it was region-wide. Uh, it covered the entire area from uh, what is today Crescent City, California, all the way up into Canada and all the way covering the entire state of Idaho, slopping over into Montana and Nevada. It's a wonder that any of those people didn't just turn tail and move back east after all that. Some of them did. Yeah. Some of them did. Uh, I know of at least two uh, instances where people had had enough out here and they went back to where they were from. And. To take that weather information you found in those in the research you did, and to then sort of populate it with these characters who are trying to get back home, how did you how did you go about kind of coming up with the characters, and what did you what kind of research did you do to to, to make those composites, or are they based on real people? Those those are real people. I had such fun. I love research. Research is is my forte, actually. And uh, after. I got fascinated by the story, by the two typewritten pages. And actually what I found the most poignant out of those two typewritten pages was the account of the one man, Mr. Moody, giving his overcoat to the man who fell in the snow and then going on himself into the blizzard. Mm. I found that just, that's amazing. Yeah. Many, many people would not have the, the kindness and, and Mr. Moody made it through. He was somewhat frostbitten, but he's one of the ones that made it through to the end. After I found that, that particular two typewritten pages, I got into the old newspapers. At that time, I didn't have any Internet access. <laughs> so I went to the, the Knight Library at the U of O in Eugene, <laughs> and they have a wonderful collection of the newspapers. And I sought out the stories from the day, and actually the, the Oregonian out of Portland was my very best source, because there are no existent copies of the Mountaineer from the Dalles from that time, and it's a darn shame. Oh, because that would have, but since the Dalles was sort of a critical junction there in terms of where I know a lot of people, like when it's not winter time, a lot of people coming on foot or by horseback or by wagon, that's where they would get on a boat to go the rest that's of the way to Portland. And it's just too darn bad that their newspapers are not available. I'm sure they're sitting in someone's attic. Huh. They've wallpapered their attic with them or something <laughs> like that. They may find some copies eventually. Wow. But after I was able to find the newspaper accounts, I got a much better idea of how many people were on the stagecoach and who they were. They had the actual passenger list. Neat. 
you know, I got to admit, I'm not much of a historical fiction reader in general. I mean, it's not something that, I, that I'm normally drawn to. But reading your mm -hmm. book, I feel like I understand that time period in a different and a better way than I did before from just sort of reading the newspaper accounts or looking at old history books or sort of talking about it. It's sort of, I got sucked into the story. <laughs> well, I'm really glad. I'm really glad when people like the story because I had a darn good time putting it together. Uh, I, I felt that it was very wide and very deep, that there were so many people, real people that I could identify that were in the story, and after identify after identifying them, I could go and find the mining claims from Idaho and the census information from uh, both the state of Washington and the territory of Washington, the state of Oregon, and Idaho didn't exist at that point, which I did not realize when I started. All of Idaho was part of Washington. Yeah, and wouldn't that be great to make that happen again someday? Take kind of take oh it back. Oh my gosh. Um, now, the story, I know I don't want to give away the end or anything, but I know the story is sure. centered on a group of people who are trying to get from, tell me about the, what, what was that gold rush or what was the mineral rush that was going on in that, in that 1861 that those people were part of? It was the Salmon River gold rush. Okay. Uh, there are a great many uh, mining claim towns, ghost towns, on both sides of the Salmon River in, in Idaho. The particular one that most of these people came from was called Florence. And no one, no one knew about it until someone discovered gold there, so no one had ever spent a winter there. Hmm. And the few fellows that did decide to spend a winter there suffered greatly. And these ones that, that took the stagecoach ride, they made it out of the mountains. And, and they were on their way back to their homes and their families for the most part. And that part of the country, um, how many, roughly how many um, uh, American settlers or non-native people were at, took part in that gold rush? Any idea like what the population of that, that Florence or that area I, was? I got a hold of some statistics at one point and uh, one account said that Many, many people from the Willamette Valley and from uh, Puget Sound came there, hmm. and there were over 3,000 miners in the Florence camp at the height of the season. Wow. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a pretty big boom town then for, for those days. That, that's, I mean, that's, like, that's pretty really huge for, for 1861, yeah. And I got a hold of some pictures of modern-day Florence. There's not a building left. <laughs> um. And so how did you, I mean, in terms of the timing, I know I think it's, it's, it's late December when they, the group starts heading home or starts heading out of, a, out of Idaho or what's now sure. Idaho with the ultimate destination yep. of the Willamette Valley. How did you, you know, what was the timing? How did you actually piece together the timeline and the, the various events that happened along the way? There were, there was the account, the two-page account, and then there were the articles in the newspapers. And then I started piecing together the obituaries after after the fact and I could trace back then how long it must have taken them to get from point A to point B and it kind of made sense these men were trying to get home for Christmas but they didn't leave in enough time and it almost made real good sense to me that some of them had left the day before Christmas Okay. They they could they knew they couldn't make it home, but doggone it, they were on the road and they were trying. 
Now, prior to writing this book, and have you done, and it seems like you've done a lot of research going back many decades, have you written other sort of fiction or nonfiction, or have you, have you published anything before? I did uh, publish a book called Murder at Hales Ferry. Hmm. Uh, that was back in 2006, 2007. Okay. Uh, it was the true story of the first prosecuted murder in Lynn County, Oregon. Hmm. And that one I ran into by chance. I was doing family history research, and my dad had told me, he says, there's a murder back there. He says, I don't know who it is, but there's a murder back there. And, and he had grave doubts about one of his great aunts. She thought she might, that that might have been the murderer, but I said, no, 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 Dad. She, <laughs> she didn't kill anybody. <laughs> and uh, I found out it was the brother or a brother of my great-great-grandfather who was killed, and uh, wow. that was a card game on the banks of the Sandy Am River down in Lynn County hmm. on a Christmas Eve, and there was liquor involved, and things went very badly. Now, are you drawn to sort of wintertime or holiday time stories? I don't really think so, but <laughs> it sure has turned out that way. Huh. And now, um, did you, what did you do for your day job? Are you retired now? Do you still work? Tell me about what your background is. Oh, uh, let's see here. Uh, I've done a few different things. I was a surgical dental assistant for hmm. eight years with the, with the Vancouver Veterans Administration. Okay. Uh, I've also been a secretary for a clinic. I worked at a traditional English tea room for a while. <laughs> that was very interesting. <laughs> uh, and I've worked in the antique malls around town. And... Of course, someone who likes history and working in the antique malls, that, that's, oh my, you know, the, you get talking with the customers, you get looking at the stuff that's on display. It's, it's kind of like working and playing at the same time. Yeah. And, and so the very first research project you did, was that some sort of a family project many, many decades ago? Or what was your, what was your yes. first introduction? Uh, when I, when I quit working for the VA, um, I had the time to do a little some, some of the things that I wanted to do. And my father, his family, uh, everyone who was alive in his family in 1850 came on the Oregon Trail. There were six different families of them. Wow. So I thought, I, I, and I hadn't known that. And it was very interesting to find it out. Uh, he thought that the one branch of his family was totally extinct. Hmm. And was very happy to find out that no, there were there were quite a few members of that family left alive. Uh, it's funny what gets lost along the way. I know there were people back in his in his heritage that their parents died when they were still little, and I think a lot of family history is lost that way. Yeah, and um, so the the people in Snowbound Stagecoach. Have you able, been able to track down or have you heard from any descendants of some of the characters in the book? Yes. Actually, I, I am personally acquainted with one lady who is a direct descendant of William Alton and then little William right on down. A uh, very nice lady. I, I was a member of the Alton, actually I was the vice president, of the Alton Family Association for several years. And... That, that's actually the branch of the family that father thought there was no one left. Hmm. But I started, I got in touch with them. Uh, they got in touch with me. 
and it was really kind of nice. There was like 80 or 90 of them still living, and we would get together and have picnics, and the family historian would bring a huge box full of photographs and documents and stuff. It was really nice to connect with them. Yeah, I have a, a relative who does Roman history and does, you know, summers oh. in Turkey doing archaeological digs, looking at stuff that's, you know, 2,000 years old. And, you know, there's, there's, wow. there's, no, there's no written documents to go with this. They're, you know, they're digging things up and, and making speculative, you know, surmising and that sort of thing. The thing about yes. nor- Northwest history, the written part of Northwest history and the, the era where settlers come, you know, obviously natives have been here for millennia. But yes. this this period of, of native of non native settlement is so recent. I mean, it's just it's just like it was yesterday. It seems so yes. fresh and like it just happened. And the fact there are newspapers from 150 years ago, and there are descendants of people who you yes. know, maybe remember their grandfather when they were a little kid, who might have been one of these people who was who was there when it happened. That's still I I I, I never I never lose my sense of wonder about how fresh the non native history here all seems. I know my my mother used to say that uh, her, let's see, her, her paternal grandfather was a little boy during the Civil War, and he remembered. And so she always found that fascinating. She says the Civil War is really close because Grandpa was nine years old during the Battle of Gettysburg. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Now, what kind of reception have you gotten from people from the, with this book? Um, generally good. Uh, I don't know if the ones that don't like it just don't talk to me, uh, <laughs> but uh, generally very good, and I'm I'm very pleased when people like it. I know uh, one friend that I talked to on the phone, he says, I was sorry when it was done. <laughs> That's probably the nicest compliment uh, an author can hear, I think. Cause that, that I was very, very thrilled about that. I, I, I like that a lot. Now, I know it's also been tough on a lot of authors during the pandemic because there has not been the opportunities to meet with yeah. readers, to do live appearances at bookstores and things. Yeah. I'm sure that's been the case for you. Is there anything on the horizon that's coming up or that, that or is it just still oh, too early to say? I, I wish. I wish. Yeah. I had uh, speaking engagements all lined out before the pandemic and we had to cancel, cancel, cancel. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if if I'm being uh, pessimistic or what, but I'm hoping maybe by next year at this time I can be speaking to groups. That sort of seems like what it feels like. It's going to be a while till till things are sort of back it, to normal. It enough. does. It yeah. does. The, you know, various uh, things are now being put off until at least February. Yeah. Have you thought about doing any kind of like a either sort of dramatic reading or? Um almost like a performance oh, I would love to. yeah i would love to the the one uh the one uh engagement that i had was a reading uh, to do a reading down at the high desert museum out of bend and i was very oh. disappointed not to be able to do that that would be great fun yeah do you have a favorite section of the book or a favorite scene or something i don't know if you have the book close by or handy or if you have a favorite couple of paragraphs oh. you might mind reading reading to us as part of the show uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a, a portion here where the the stagecoach passengers have to stay at one of the uh, stage stops. Oh, I like that scene. That's a great scene. That, I thought that was really evocative. The way that kind of painted a picture of a of a place places I've read about, but never really thought about what they might have looked or felt like. 
Exactly. And uh, what I'm thinking about here is the little boy, the little three-year-old boy. He sized everybody up that was coming in and made a good choice on who he might want to hang around. <laughs> Maybe I should read just a little bit of that. Sure, that sounds great. Okay. Young William was loyal to his new friend Glover. He did not even try to converse with Mulkey or Riddle. He was polite to Davis, but the man didn't interest him. Although he was not allowed to go outside because of the cold, William followed Glover around whenever he was inside the house. On the second afternoon of their stay, Glover brought in some short, finger-length pieces of half-inch thick willow twigs. Looky here, young Billy. Did you ever see a, wi- a willow whistle? asked Glover. No, sir, I never, said the youngster. I seen my daddy make them before, said Alan. Alan's the 11-year-old. I bet you did, said Glover. Maybe you can, you can tell me then. Am I going to have any luck making this into a whistle out of these at this time of year? I know they'll work fine come May or June, but I don't know about now. What do you think, Alan? Glover asked. I surely don't know, sir, said Alan. We might ruin them, but I guess we'll just have to risk it, said Glover, getting out his knife. Now, they need to be just about this big around and about this long. You cut the ends nice and straight and clean, see, just like this, and then you take your first cut, and that goes just through the bark, like this, about an inch down. See that? All the way around, just like that. Now, gentlemen, we got ourselves what you call the moment of truth, he said. What do you think, Alan? Is that bark going to slide nice and easy off that last inch of this here whistle I'm making? Or is it going to stick and be a bugbear? Asked Glover. I don't know. I guess we'll just have to risk it, huh? Asked, asked Alan. Just have to risk it, agreed young William. Well, friends, that's just what we'll do, said said Glover. Grasping and twisting the piece of willow, Glover managed to dislodge the bark, but it didn't come off cleanly. I thought that the little boy would find a friend among the passengers that came in, and he latched on to this man who was barely a man. He was just 18 or 19, and so he'd been a little boy himself not too long ago, and he had little brothers and sisters, and uh, the three-year-old chose well, I thought. That's very nice. Now, have you ever in your mind thought about, hmm, if somebody were to commission a screenplay of this, who would I cast as some of these characters? Which Hollywood actors would I have play these different parts? Oh, oh, that would be such fun. I haven't given it much thought. Uh, <laughs> the stagecoach driver especially would be great fun. I, I think the stagecoach driver is one of the most heroic and stalwart people in the whole book. And I'm just not sure. Maybe, maybe a young Sam Elliott for the stagecoach driver. <laughs> Tell me about the, the image on the cover of the book. Tell me what we're looking at and, and who, where'd that image come from? Oh, I'm so pleased with that. Uh, my editor is just super good. She's extremely good at what she does, very professional. And she had the idea that we commission a Western artist to do a picture of a stagecoach in the snow. And that's what that is. That is 
the reproduction of an oil painting. And you you commissioned that for this book. Yes. Wow, and, this is this is I, a classy operation. This this publisher. I am extremely pleased with Moonglade Press. I I'm pleased with the layout, with the font, uh, with the weight of the paper, the the photographs. I I have no complaints about them whatsoever. They have been extremely good to me. Wonderful. That's great. That's really good to hear. That's a fabulous looking book and it's a great story and boy, perfect for a holiday holiday gift. I mean, it seems like the perfect well, gift if someone you know likes Northwest history and likes a good story, this would be the perfect thing to give somebody for the holidays, don't you think? Oh, I thank you. I thank you. I I am. I'm very pleased with the the production value of it. I yeah. think they did a very fine job for me. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Lenora Whiteman. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Columbia Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Lenora Whiteman for speaking with me on this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Her novel, Snowbound Stagecoach, is published by Moonglade Press and is available from local bookstores as well as online booksellers. For more information about Columbia Magazine, or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.